In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not there, but so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. This summer commemorates the 65th anniversary of Disneyland, and one individual who's spent much time exploring its origins serves as today's guest. Dr. Todd James Pierce is a renowned author who wrote Three Years in Wonderland, The Disney Brothers, C.V. Wood, and The Making of the Great American Theme Park. Over the course of 250 pages and a very robust notes section, Todd shares how Walt's dream became a reality and exposes a figure in Disney history who has long been shadowed by the company itself. That is C.V. Wood. So today Todd chats with me about this essential read that really has to belong in your library of books about the California park. Just a note, though, before we get into the interview, there were some audio issues with the first roughly 20 minutes of the interview and that you'll occasionally hear uh, some uh, condensing of the of the words and then where it uh, ramps up at times just because of the strength of the internet connection. Thankfully, that was resolved later on. So just a little note to be aware of it, but it hopefully will not uh, ruin your listening experience. Todd has a lot of great stuff to share, and I look forward to sharing that with you. So let's shift right into the interview with Todd James Pierce. Well, today on Notably Disney, we are entering a time machine of sorts nearly seven decades back as we explore the origins of the happiest place on Earth. And my co-pilot on this quest is a guest whose work uncovers the role that businessman C.B. Wood played into the creation of the Anaheim Park. So joining me today is Dr. Todd James Pierce, author of Three Years in Wonderland, The Disney Brothers, C.B. Wood, and The Making of the Great American Theme Park. So we'll talk all about this book, which is a really fascinating dive into Disneyland's development. And it's really also worth mentioning that Todd is the author of the well-received title that was published more recently, The Life and Times of Ward Kimball. And he's an English professor at Cali California Polytechnic University. Todd hosts the Disney History Institute podcast, which since 2013 has featured really rich and in-depth analyses into the history of the Walt Disney Company, interviews and news. Todd, you wear a lot of hats. Such, such is the case with a lot of really uh, prolific people who are producing good work for Disney. So welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, I'm glad to have this conversation with you. We're, we're talking shortly before what will be Disneyland's 65th anniversary. Um, it's certainly a precarious time as all of us continue to uh, navigate the, the world we inhabit um, with this pandemic. But I wanted to offer everybody a chance to learn a 
a little bit more about Disneyland's roots and and your role in kind of uncovering its history. So first off, can you maybe share with our listeners what inspired you to write a book about C.V. Wood, who's kind of this mysterious figure in Disney history, um, and the origins of Disneyland? Because certainly this is a topic that so many of us are continually enchanted with. Um, so so it, it, it has kind of like a... I think with all like book link projects, there's there's not like one single inspiration. It was kind of a number of things that had come together, and and so, geez, it's it's a while ago now, about twenty years ago. Um, I was aware that there was um, uh, a fair bit of research going on in terms of early and mid-century animation, and there was some research going on in terms of the the art directors and architects and engineers that that built the first park, but there wasn't a whole lot of work going on in that. And so I had grown up around Disneyland. My, my grandmother worked there. Um, you know, this is like an entirely different era um, uh, because there were times that I just take my homework over there and do it over there. Um, back when on a weekday in February, um, there would be, I don't know, 8,000, 10,000 people in the parks. So it was pretty empty. Um, and so I'd, I'd grown up a, a, around that environment, and, and through her, I'd, I'd met a lot of the early designers. And there was a certain point when I was a graduate student that I thought, well, this would be kind of an interesting side thing to get into, because it's something that was you know, part of my own past and um, something that had interested me for a long time. And I, I knew a lot of these people were really getting up there in age. They were in their 80s um, or, or older. Some of the people I interviewed were in their 90s. Um, and so I, I started kind of kind of collecting up some of this research. And so that's kind of like one path that kind of led led in that direction. And then there was another path. My, my first job out of graduate school was at Clemson University. That's the first place that I went to teach. And I was there for a while. And then I kept applying for jobs back home, back in California. And so there was a year that I got a job out in California. And um, uh, we had... Um, a, a fairly large house. It was just my wife and I, but things were so cheap in South Carolina that we got there and we did, I think, the, the, the traditional newcomer mistake. It's like, my God, we can afford like a 3,500 square foot house for the two of us. And so when we sold that, we had to pack everything up and um, close everything down and um, get it all cleaned up. And that was going to take a lot of time. So I, I told my um, literary agent at the time, that um, I didn't think I could work on any uh, book-length projects that, that year because it was going to be frustrating because I had all this other work to do and I had to move and we had to get a new house and it was just going to be time. And, and these were books that I was working on b before I um, started writing books about Disney. There, there's a whole other set, set out there. And um, he said, well, why don't you send me uh, three magazine ideas and I will pitch them. And so I sent him three magazine ideas. And so one of the stories that I'd had kind of floating around in my head somewhere was I knew about C.B. Wood. I knew some people that had worked with C.B. Wood, and I knew the general parameters of that. And I felt reasonably confident that I could um, uh, uh, find um, research materials that then I could um, assemble into a type of narrative magazine article length history of the early part of the park focused on this person who had been purposefully weeded out of, of the early history of Disneyland. And, and so I sent out my three ideas. That was just one of them. And he showed them around. And there was one magazine that said that they thought that this could probably be an interesting thing if I wanted to develop it. And so when I got out in California and set up a new office and, um, we, you know, found a place to live and, and those types of things, um, I started to um, move more focused in terms of research into this area. And by the time the school year started up, um, I had like 100 and something, 110, 115 pages, over 100 pages of, um, you, you know, it was all rough draft stuff of, of uh, what this article was going to be. And I was still kind of like lying to myself and saying that I would be able to kind of edit this down and shrink it down into... Uh, 15 pages, you know, 5,000 words or something like that. And um, 
it, it was just fascinating to me. And I saw that there was a very natural uh, uh, storyline arc. And so there was a certain point, like around February of the following year, where I just said, okay, I'm just going to like, you know, throw everything into this and try to shape a, shape a book around it and see what I can, see what I can do with that. I, <laughs> I thought it would take to finish it because I had this misconception even then that mostly what I would be doing would be uh, using archives or places or special collections that had material readily available that I would just need to redact it all into some sort of unified narrative. And what I eventually learned was that there was some of this, there wasn't a great deal of it, there was some of this, but mostly what had been collected as the history, early history of Disneyland was from a very small group of people. Sure, so can you kind of give some perspective? It sounds like this was a really in-depth endeavor. When did you kind of officially start working on what would have been a magazine article? <laughs> uh, the summer of 2005. <laughs> um, and the book comes out like, um, like almost a decade later. So um, we had some kids in there. There was other things. There was um, one, two, three. I think there was four other books that had nothing to do with Disney that I also um, worked on during that period and, and then were published. Um, so there was other projects that I was picking up and putting down. But it was a, it was a project that I worked on for a long time. Wow. And I, I had noticed in the notes section, um, which is very thorough, mentioning all the sources, and I had noticed that were that there were some interviews from like the mid to, to late 2000s, but I wasn't sure the context. So, wow, you, this was really extensive. Um, I, I, I didn't think there was really a way to kind of do it without trying to be on the ground as, as much as I as much as I could be. Um, so also in this pre-pandemic world, one of the things that I did was um, I used to, my classes that I've taught, I've always been Tuesday, Thursday classes. And so I used to, um, after my Thursday classes were done, um, for about a year and a half, two years, maybe twice a month, um, I would just go catch a plane because I found that interviewing people in person was so much better than interviewing people over the phone. That that. Um, you could have conversations that go on much longer in person. And also, if you're there in person, you can show them photos. They can show you the photos they have. Sometimes they have um, uh, letters. Sometimes they have all kinds of things at their house that you would never find out about if you did a phone interview. There, there was, I went out to Texas, and I was interviewing a person that had worked with C.B. Wood, who's a central figure in, in the book. And... Um, at the end of it, at the end of it, I kind of had the standard list of things that I'd ask. It's like, well, do you have any do you have any photos of that period? And he showed me some photos, and I asked, do you have any letters, or did you keep a diary? And he said, no, I didn't have any of that. And he said, but there is this one thing. I interviewed a lot of these people <laughs> in the 1960s, and I kept the tapes. And, and we'd been talking like wow. for you know <laughs> hours at this point. It is like. This is like, you know, the most useful thing I'd come across in, in months and months and months. And it was only because, you know, I was there in person and um, we had talked a while um, that it kind of jarred his memory that he had some real to real. So he still go down to the airport and catch a flight somewhere. Um, Texas, went to Texas a bunch of times. Uh, Texas, Florida, New York, uh, wherever. And um, after doing this for a few months, I asked. Um, it was the United Count, so I'm probably getting someone in trouble now. It was the United Count, and I said, um, if I want, it's, we just have this chance of being oversold. What time would I need to book that for? And the person I guess at the counter couldn't have been more helpful and pulled up everything from like the last couple of weeks to figure out when the when those flights were most likely oversold and kind of you know gave me this roadmap towards uh, finding a way to fund a lot of this research by um, taking flights that were oversold and then getting flight certificates for subsequent flights to do more research. There was a point that I had um, uh, six flights, so I just kind of cycled through these um, for a long period of time to get the work done. Well, that's just really incredible. I. I, I was really intrigued when you mentioned those old recordings from the 1960s. So how how good were they in terms of the quality, if you were able they to play were, them? 
They, um, I, I, yeah. So I, I did, um, I didn't play them myself. They were real thrill. I, I've got equipment here for, they weren't in great shape because I was a little afraid that it might be kind of one and done with these. Um, I took them to an audio restoration place and had them digitally transferred. I felt that was the safest way to go. But once they were transferred, the, I mean, it was, you know, pop and scratchy. Um, it was the type of quality that you might expect from something that was, um, well, then 40 years old, um, that had been done on a portable reel-to-reel tape recorder, but it was perfectly, uh, you know, perfectly understandable. You could hear tones and inflections. It was, it was fabulous. That's, that's really cool. Could you maybe give listeners some context to who C.V. Wood was in case sure. they haven't read the book? Oh, absolutely. So um, C.B. Wood, um, probably, he's an interesting collection of contradictions. He's, um, an ex- he was an extremely bright person, but he, he had been brought up during the Depression, and he had been brought up in poverty. And some, some of those experiences kind of pushed him towards... Uh, certain types of self-protective instincts where he would con other people so that um, he would be financially supported. And so he was a bit of a con man. Um, and, and so um, extended relatives sent him off to college. And um, this, was, this was another area. It took me a while to kind of figure out. Extended relatives sent him off to college. And I had put together a pretty extensive timeline on everything that I had of him. And I could never get the college material to, to pan out. It was always like off by a year. And for about the first year of this, I, I um, had just simply put it down to that people's memories were off. Because we're talking about things that had happened 70 years ago at that point. It was, it was a while ago. And so I had little question marks about that part of the, part of the timeline. And then I was talking to one of his childhood friends. It was in Texas. And um, uh, his, friend, his friend told me, it's like, well, we always suspected that he just said he graduated from, from college. And then like suddenly the lights go off in my head. It's like, of course, he just made up his diploma. Um, and so then I, he went to two schools. And uh, universities, uh, by law, are only supposed to release um, three pieces of information upon request to someone that makes a request. And that is um, uh, dates attended, um, uh, degrees studied, and uh, degrees confirmed. And so the, the first school that I called up, um, uh, Simon Hardens, um, the person that I talked to there in the registrar's office pulled up his record and read his entire record to me, which was extremely helpful. Um, and he did not have enough passing units at that school to even be a sophomore, I don't think. Um, and he'd only attended uh, part-time each year. He was there for two years. And so then I made a, a formal request to the University of Oklahoma, uh, a degree confirmation request, which probably took a while for them to pull through because it was something that would have been decades old. And they confirmed that he had never graduated. He did briefly for a year, but had, had never graduated um, from there either. And at this point, it became a lot more interesting because here's a person who, in the world before the internet, before these things would have been fairly easy to check on, back in the days where you couldn't even make long-distance phone calls yourself, that he had convinced some um, large companies that he had a degree in engineering. There was a period where he worked for Stanford Research Institute where he also tried to convince people that he had a PhD in economics. Um, though I think that he decided that was a little bit too much to pull off, and so he backed off that idea for a while. Um, but he um, gets out of, gets gets away from college, doesn't graduate from college. He he oversees engineers that are building planes. Um, he is bright enough to be able to see into systems, to understand how mechanics work, understands how social systems work, and to position himself so that he's almost always towards the top of a very complex system. And from there, he starts working with uh, economic uh, research people, and he oversees people that have graduate degrees in economics, and he has no training and no no college degree at all in in any of this. And it's in that capacity that he first meets Walt Disney. 
he had um, worked on some other projects about companies moving to California in particular. Southern California is an expansion area of the country in the 1950s. And so there's Ford, um, General Electric. There's large companies that are that are looking to move to California. And, and um, his firm had done uh, research economics work to figure out um, what types of workers would be there, what, um, what the tax rates would be, what the different utility rates would be, um, land prices, where would be the most advantageous places to build for them. And through this and through a peripheral connection that uh, Walt Disney has with, with one of his neighbors, an architect, one of the people that Wood works with, Buzz Price, um, first meets up with some people from Disney. And through that, um, uh, Buzz Price and C.V. Wood and the SRI, Stanford Research Institute firm, is, is hired to, to, to do two things for Disney. At this point, Walt has spent some money on some land in Calabasas, and that's north of L.A. City. And uh, Roy has the idea that this is probably not the best place to put the amusement park. And they're unable to get enough land to put it across the street from the studio. And so Roy suggests that they need to bring in some sort of experts to figure out um, where is a reasonable place to put this land and how uh, this park and how big should the plot of land be. And so C.B. Wood and Buzz Price um, and some others come in from SRI to perform um, a, a land survey study to figure out where to place this park. And then they also put together an economic feasibility study. The economic feasibility study um, uh, kind of traditionally would define whether or not a company should go down a, a certain path of development, should make the park or not. Um, but at this point, Walt's so invested in it, there's going to be a park of some type built somewhere. And so the economic feasibility study then simply becomes an inducement um, for other companies investing in the park in terms of sponsorships or at least areas. It becomes a way of explaining why this is going to be a financially viable viable um, uh, project. And so they, they do these two things. And while growing up, uh, C.B. Wood, or Woody, had been enamored with Hollywood pictures, uh, spends his very early years in Oklahoma, and then moves to Texas. And so he's enamored with pictures. He's enamored with this idea of celebrity. He, he is not a celebrity. He, he will have minor roles in pictures when he's much more. Um, but he likes being around celebrity. And he sees this idea that, that Walt Disney has, and he's able to see into it at a very deep level, um, far more easily, oddly, than many of the artists that work at Disney. Um, Wood is able to recognize that what Walt is doing is that he's creating a place where the worlds of TV and movie movies become a, a geographic entertainment for uh, a population that is also becoming far more enamored with uh, Hollywood-style productions in the mid-1950s. And Wood can say that this is going to be a likely a very successful idea. He would like to be part of it. And so he convinces um, Roy Disney to hire him as the president of Disneyland. At the Disney company at that time, there's two lines of, of managerial hierarchy. The creative team goes up to Walt, and um, the financial and uh, legal team goes up to, to Roy. And so he's going to be under that. And Walt and Wood don't get along from the beginning. And I suspect this is actually one of the things Roy likes about Wood at the start, is that he's someone that can stand up to some of Walt's um, very expensive and at times unrealistic creative ideas about what he wants to do over at the park. Yeah, absolutely. It becomes clear that even though Wood had a certain level of understanding and vision of the park, his um, his mindset was in many ways such a complete contrast to how Walt approached things, which was more of a visionary as opposed to a, a pragmatist. Yeah. So there's um, so neither of these people either kind of write down their philosophies. <clears throat> sorry, write down their philosophies about what they think um, a, a cinematic theme park would be like, but if you look at how they want to spend underlying things that they are willing to approve, there is really um, a, a unified set of principles that bubbles up from that. Um, Walt Disney wants to spend money on uh, rich detail and immersive theming in the 1950s. Um, Walt's 
idea about what people would do in a theme park is different than Wood's idea. It's kind of like a two-part hurdle that you have to get over here. And so in the 1950s, mid-1950s, um, if you can get over the idea that people would want to come to Southern California to spend part of their precious vacation time in a world that looks like movies. You have the Western area and the jungle area, and then the area that looks like um, uh, uh, a uh, historical period film. If you can get over that hurdle, that this is what people are really going to want to do with their vacation, is to come into the world of movies and spend a day or two there. Then there's this other fascinating question, and that is, well, once they come there, what do they want to do once they're inside of the park? And if you look at the spending priorities of Walt and Wood, um, they have two very different ideas. And I think these are both smart ideas. And they, they play out in different ways in terms of the later development of theme parks. They have two very different ideas about what the, the audience is going to want to do once they're there. Walt believes that they're going to want to um, engage in a type of immersive play. That is, they're going to want to be co-participants and the dramas they see going on around them. And so for Walt, the, the level of detail, the sight lines are very important because this is a type of uh, a, a visual environment that's going to confirm that they're really on a turn of the century street or they're really in a frontier village. And in, in those early years, Walt hires people that are essentially actors to go around and play sheriffs and bad guys and have gunfights in the streets of Frontierland, and there's another set of characters on Main Street, and so on. And so he thinks that people are going to want to come in and participate in the drama to help build the stories that are inside the park. Woody's idea is um, that this is not what people are going to want to do when they come to a theme park. They're going to want to be in the environment of the movies, but what they're going to want to do is that they're going to want to... Um, come in to be a type of audience. They're just going to want to see the things around them in a movie theater where there's drama around them, but they don't participate in the drama. And so if you're in that second camp um, that uh, they just want to see the drama played out around them, it doesn't matter as much if the details are all um, inclusive, if the sight lines are entirely managed, because you can entertain people even if you can see the outside world, or even if things don't look entirely realistic, but to convince them that they're in this world of play, those detailed philosophies about what this park will will bring to people, and this is like one of the big unknowns. Who who knows? Assuming people are actually going to look at how theme parks kind of spin forward. If you look at how theme parks spin forward. Uh, both these ideas um, kind of play out in, in how theme parks work. And so if you go into Galaxy's Edge now in California or Florida, that's very much an immersive area. You go in there and you're part of the drama that's around you. But if you look at the rides from like the 1980s, or the 1990s, where you're strapped into a seat and you move by a bunch of show scenes, you're just an audience member. You aren't participating in that at all. But that, that you know... Those disagreements happened at a very early period in, in uh, the development of theme parks. So I guess shifting gears a little bit, Todd, we're talking about the, we we're just talking about the notion of immersion and attractions and the experiences that guests set for themselves. And one component of the book that I liked that you touched on a little bit were some blue sky concepts based on Disney films that ultimately didn't materialize. And I'm wondering in, in your own research and as someone who's very much familiar with the legacy of Disney, were there any particular uh, ideas that you would have liked to see materialize? There's some really kind of lovely early uh, Bruce Bushman ideas, uh, 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 an artist for Disney, that he comes up with. Um, Bushman was able to kind of see his way into the world of what Disneyland could be um, in, in terms of particularly how children would play with it. And so he comes up with some you know, interesting inventive ideas um, for what they might build there. And early on, um, Disney's, Disney's approach, so the development of Disneyland is kind of a layered process. Um, th there's a period in kind of the early mid fifties where what the Disney people are doing is they're trying to understand what types of stock ride systems are out there. 
what types of rides exist in the world of outdoor amusements and figuring ways to adapt them into um, uh, unique rides for, for Disneyland. This has a lot to do with kind of like design and overlay of, of what, what exists out there. And so, you know, Dumbo is really kind of this adaptation of, of the octopus ride uh, that you'd see at carnivals and spinning teacups or an adaptation mm -hmm. of early spinners. Uh, there was a shoots the shoot ride. Um, there was a, a boat attraction um, where really with no theming at a, at a lot of amusement parks like Coney Island, you just go up on this ramp and then come down a very steep slope and uh, splash down in a pool of water. Uh, one of Bruce Bushman's ideas is that you could do this all indoors and the splashdown would be coming out in a Pinocchio ride out of the mouth of uh, the whale Monstro. And oh, so, yes. yeah, he, he got into some interesting ideas. Um, there was, um, I think it was Ken Anderson's idea for a, a walkthrough of Alice in Wonderland that they had. So they had some like kind of inventive ideas. Um, whereas I guess not now, but a few years ago at WDI, um, I see it as a place that has access to a significant amount of money. And this money, I think, becomes an answer to a lot of problems in large businesses. And sometimes you get to more creative ideas when there isn't money. And that's very much where uh, Disney was in 1953 and 1954 when Disneyland is being designed. It's like, what can you make that's very inventive that's not going to be extraordinarily expensive? And so some of the things that they came up with that, that weren't built were, were very inventive like that. Well, I, I think, you know, it's just very fun as a reader to kind of hear about these concepts and then you also lead them to some resources like uh, Jeff Curdy's Art of Disneyland book where they could actually see um, some mm -hmm. of these images, but what another quality that I appreciate as a reader, and and you make a, a a nice note of this at the conclusion of the book in terms of how you were constructing it, you really wanted to to make people feel like that they're there on opening day, you you know you're smelling everything, you're seeing the people sink into the cement, um, and and all of those uh, different aspects of uh, a park in its inception and. I'm wondering from, from your standpoint, given that Disneyland is such a, a highly visited place and there's such lore and such interesting history, how did you feel about your role as an author uncovering tidbits that really hadn't seen the light of day until you had conducted these interviews or, or dug up these details? So there was a certain certain parts of the book that, that I might refer to as set pieces, so kind of longer narrative stretches that I thought would be important to the story. And in, in, some, time, in some places, kind of my hunches panned out well, and in some places they didn't, they just kind of fell away from the project. But opening day and the night before was something that I asked almost everybody about as I went out to interview them. And um, I think I interviewed over 100 people for it. And, um, and so I'd kind of take down notes on this because I knew that I wanted to kind of build a, a significant chapter about what the day before and the day of was like. And the stories that came out were just fascinating. And, and so I was doing this shortly before the 50th anniversary of Disneyland. And, you know, 50 years later, Disneyland's a big success. And um, the narrative of how you think of something 50 years ago is colored by what it is now. And so my goal is to try to get back into the moment and to bring readers along with me into the moment so they could experience what was it like to go to this, this place that people didn't have a term for um, back in 1955. The term theme park is um, invented in the 1960s. It's, uh, it's an amusement park with themed lands in, the, in 1955. You don't even have a category name for what it is. So what was it like to be there? And um, it, it soon became clear that there was a lot of doubt about how well it was working on, on July 17th and would it even be able to financially stay open and how much of it had literally fallen apart. And to cry out of, um, through people's memories and through photos and th there were some home movies even that, that I saw, um, through all these things to uh, structure up what it would have been like to have been there on that day without having the 
the vantage that we have now so far into the future and to understand that everything's going to be good eventually um, if they just stick with it long enough to be there on that day. So that's what I was trying to, to, to accomplish with some of that research anyways. For sure. And uh, kind of along these lines, the, the notion of opening day is not only marked by um, some of the uh, challenges that the ABC crew faced in, in filming the park um, and, and attractions and places not necessarily even being completely finished, but also a huge degree of corporate sponsorships, which, as you note, Wood was so significant in making those come to fruition. And ultimately, the notion of those corporate sponsorships has really promulgated throughout the parks in, in the years since. Can you maybe talk a little bit about Walt's resistance to this at first? I, I recall that he was a very stingy person and very um, <laughs> peculiar with with money and wanting things to be handled in a certain way. And then on the flip side, you have C.V. Wood as, as ultimately the businessman. Can you kind of talk about how um, you understood that dynamic to be? Sure. So uh, that is one of the most significant things that Wood brings to the project. Um, off the top of my head, um, it's been a while since I've worked on this project. I believe that he brings in a total of four and a half million dollars. And by the time that Disneyland is about to open, um, it is so far behind that it spills that there's a number of um, uh, construction uh, supply businesses that won't deliver to uh, the Disney side anymore, unless they are paid cash on the spot, um, because they are that far behind in their bills. And, and so it costs um, 17 million. I think it's actually closer to 18 million because they find some additional receipts shortly after the park opens that had been pushed aside by an accountant. Um, but if you subtract off four and a half million dollars from that, that means that the the project is going broke somewhere around April and there's really no path towards completion. And so without uh, Woody's contributions to this, the, the part can't be made. I think that there's a reasonable chance that the, the project would have gone bankrupt. At that time, we, we think of Disneyland now as part of the Disney company. Um, the uh, 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 board that oversees Disney really wanted nothing to do with an outdoor amusements project. And so in 1955, uh, Disneyland is a separate company from Walt Disney Productions. It's uh, Disneyland Incorporated. And uh, Walt Disney Productions does have a, a share in the ownership of it. Um, but there's other companies that have uh, significant shares in it, like ABC and um, a publishing company and Walt Disney personally. And, and so it is its own entity. It also has a great deal of debt that's associated with it. And so it can go bankrupt without bankrupting the studio. And so that's a significant problem as it's moving, as it's moving through those last months. Without Woody, I don't think it really would have gotten there. And there's a chance that there never would have been a park. And that would have been a tremendous um, uh, image issue for Walt Disney Productions as well, if, if that had happened. Um, but on the other side, Woody doesn't really fit in very well with Disney. He's a bit of a con man. He's a fast talker. He cuts corners. Um, he's tremendously loyal to his friends, but often at the expense of other people that he does, 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 does business with. And you kind of, oh, I'm sorry. Were you going to continue? No, I just realized oh. I'd wandered so far from the question that I have no idea what the question was that I was supposed to be answering. No, that's quite all right. And, and I like that you kind of gave context to his personality too. It, what's really kind of interesting is, mind you, as, as a consumer of Disney and someone who is familiar with the park's history, certain elements of the book were familiar, but I found myself, as I was reading through it, constantly like on the edge of my seat because as you just talked about, it almost seemed like Disneyland wasn't going to happen, or at least not going to open with some degree of success until the last possible minute. And even so, there were still a number of challenges that the cast members and people who developed the park faced in, in making it operational. Yeah, yeah. So, um, it, it, so there's maybe multiple ways to think about what a historical narrative can do. And, and so... Usually when I get into a project like this, what I want to do is to kind of like pack everyone up with me and to figure out how we can kind of, you know, use language as a way to skip time back into the moment that we're looking at so we can experience it as people would have back then 
without the knowledge that we have now, without you know knowing the ending so much. That there are there were a couple people that remembered that Walt either was brought to tears or brought close to tears because of his frustration on opening day in the park in terms of, of how poorly it was going um, and how many things were breaking. And that's something that we, I think, entirely forget now. If you look at Disneyland, you see it as a huge um, company and financial success. Um, but that's something that happens later. And if you're there with this um, $17 million uh, experimental project, um, and that's in 1955 dollars. Um, if you're there with this very large, very expensive experimental project that many people have told you is not going to work, and on opening day it is falling apart, that has to be um, you know gut wrenching and extremely frustrating. And to try to get back into that moment before all the things make things better on the other side of it. It's it's really a fascinating reflection of sorts and. And I'm thinking too, uh, in terms of the the notion of personalities and and differences. Walt was on the ground opening day. He was obviously front and center for the cameras, but also helping out however he could. And you paint this picture of that um, that with Wood, he was kind of celebrating the opening in his office with his colleagues and kind of staying more afar, um, even though in many cases as you indicated later, he was very much a public figure. It seems like there, the, the differences were very stark with them and, and it really culminated in a very turbulent uh, rapport after the park opened. Yeah, it, things were falling apart between uh, uh, Walt and Woody before the park opens, but after the park opens, um, there's also breathing space and and Walt can regroup and insist that eventually that, that Roy uh, fires uh, C.V. Wood. But th these are kind of classically different perspectives. Um, Walt sees the park as an extension of his ideas of entertainment, I think. And he's noticing how people in the moment um, experience what he has uh, overseen the construction of. Woody understands opening day in a very different, very different light. Um, he wants to make sure that on TV, in front of millions, tens of millions of people, that the park looks enticing because he thinks that the TV audience is going to be the key to Disneyland's future success. And, and as in some other things, I think that Woody's right about that. But, um, but because he feels like he has this large goal accomplished, he is less concerned that it's falling apart for the audience that's actually there in the park than, than Walt is. He thinks that this TV audience is going to come in and save it, which, which I think actually does happen, um, but he's less concerned about the personal impressions that are being made on that day. Absolutely, and, and you conclude the book, understandably, with talking about the, the disagreements and it ultimately resulting in, in Woody being um, let go and, and leaving the, the company. Can you speak to the fact that basically in so many spaces, C.B. Wood's name has been erased from Disney history, or at least by, by Disney officially, um, not really recognizing it? Because I think that's a, really an interesting component of your own work in raising awareness of this person who is an instrumental force in, in making Disneyland open and, and be the success that it is today. Yeah, so the, the disagreements between uh, Walt and Woody continue after um, Disneyland is, is open. One of the things that Woody does is that he uh, takes away a lot of plans, takes away a lot of connections from Disneyland, and he understands that the underlying conceit of Disneyland is successful. And that also Disneyland, based on where it is, is going to be a regional park. And so what he does after leaving Disney, he, the, Disney, we talk about him being fired. Um, he's bought out of his contract, essentially. He's uh, uh, paid um, his full contract rate until the end of the year, which would have been um, July 1956. He leaves on mm -hmm. February 1st. And, and so he's, he's paid um, a, a good chunk of money to, to go. And 
you know, with this money, he develops a new company and he's going to go and build parks that are like Disneyland without the same IP, um, but have the same underlying conceit. Um, Dis Walt Disney. So one of the, one of the things that Walt opens himself up to rather unknowingly is that he doesn't want to explore specific films so much as genre of films when he builds the park. He's working mostly with people that used to be live action art directors at, uh, at Warner Brothers and Fox. So people like Harper Goff and Dick Irvine and Bill Martin. And um, he's very interested in this idea about how the park can look like film. Um, but he doesn't necessarily want to warm up to individual film titles, although um, in private, they refer to uh, individual films. They'll, they'll refer to the African queen elements of the Jungle Cruise. They, they would call the animal areas the, uh, the, the Tarzan jungle or the Hollywood jungle. And so they're very aware of what, the, what they were doing over there. Um, but because they aren't tied to individual properties that studios own, um, C.B. Wood can then go out and make parks that look very much like Disneyland. Like, um, you can't copyright a Western town and you can't copyright a jungle area and things like that. Um, so he goes up. Oh, I'm sorry. I lost you for a second. No, I said, of course, absolutely. Yeah. So he's, he goes out and he starts, um, uh, he looks for places that would like to build the Disneyland like park. He explains that, um, uh, he's the, t <laughs> I, I talked to people that Woody talked to and, um, his pitch was that, um, Walt was just the um, spokesperson for Disneyland, but that Disneyland was actually created by um, uh, C.B. Wood and Roy Disney. Those were the, those, <laughs> those were the force <laughs> behind Disneyland. <laughs> and um, people believed him. Um, and so he's able to sell his services and, and other people that worked for Disney at the time um, uh, to uh, uh, other financial groups that want to build Disneyland-like parks. Um, there's one in... There was one that was mostly built in Denver that partially opened. There's one that opens up in just outside Boston. There's a really big one that opens up um, in New York. Um, and he also works with the Six Flags people. He works also with a smaller park in Santa Monica. That's the first one he works on after leaving Disney. And so he's able to kind of parlay this into a career for many more years after he leaves, after he leaves the company. Right. And, and there's definitely other work that um, examines that too. So can you help me understand why in so many spaces Disney had kind of uh, removed his, his existence in, in a lot of the historical materials? Um, so Walt gets, um, would when he, he forms a couple of companies, Marco's one of them, he also forms um, another company to build a New York park and a park in Florida and some other places that don't actually move very far. Um, but he starts going out and giving presentations and um, he gives these presentations that really minimize Walt's um, role in the, in the, in Disneyland and to, in terms of designing or developing Disneyland and the materials from these presentations and descriptions of these presentations get back to Walt and he's upset about that. Um, Walt, uh, uh, Walt Disney Productions enters into two lawsuits that involve uh, C.B. Wood. Um, the first one has to do with uh, a misrepresentation of Woody's role on Disneyland. Um, and the other one has to do with some rights, some uh, very valuable souvenir rights that he essentially sold to his friends while he was working at Disneyland to get those back. Um, and for Walt, I think this becomes personal because uh, Woody is elevating himself in his own role at the expense of, of Walt. I, I don't think there would have been this problem if Woody had presented his role as um, the economic advisor and the first general manager and the vice president of Disneyland. But he starts talking about himself um, as a designer of Disneyland. And, and Woody, again, is extremely bright. And so um, as this is moving towards a, um, as this is moving towards a court case, um, what Woody does is he starts um, getting the perspective from some of the corporate lessees. This is what he's mainly brought into the park. And in 1955, the corporate lessees were supposed to design their areas um, 
uh, with uh, people at WED, the earlier version of Imagineering, so that their areas fit the overall theme of the land that they were involved in. And so like Upjohn's Pharmacy would have like a turn of the century pharmacy with um, uh, uh, appropriate furnishings and um, uh, uh, interior design that would, that would fit that theme. And so Wood used to talk with the lessees about how to design these areas. And so Wood comes back with this very smart response about how he wasn't a designer at Disneyland. He said, well, maybe I didn't design, you know, the Dumbo ride, or maybe I didn't design Snow White's adventures, but I was a designer in terms of putting together the lease space. And so that makes the case a lot more complicated. In terms of where this case ends, um, it simply stops in terms of its paper trail. Um, I went through all the material that at um, LA County Courthouse, it just stops. And that usually means that there is an out of court settlement reached. And I believe what the out of court um, uh, settlement agreement uh, was is that Wood would stop representing himself in a certain way um, and that Disney would stop this lawsuit. But I think that Disney also got to a point where they realized that they had kind of miscalculated a little bit about what Wood's role really was in terms of designing Disneyland. That there was some things that he could maybe talk about legitimately being a designer, though these were not the core aspects of what Disney Disneyland was. And, and so also, um, this brings us up to about 1961, the last big park that work, uh, that Woody works on is uh, the first Six Flags Park in, in uh, Texas. And Woody has a very good understanding of the American public. He knows that the baby boomers are now getting a little bit too old for, for um, uh, these theme parks. And so the population bubble is moving beyond the sweet spot in terms of um, engaging these guests. And so what he wants to do instead is he's, he seems to be content in leaving theme parks behind for a while. He re, he'll return to them back in the 80s, but he, he seems content leaving them behind for a while. And instead, he has the idea, well, if the American population that's grown up with TV finds it pleasurable to be in that type of um, designed space that looks like cinema, what if you created living communities that had some of the spectacle and design of a theme park and then sold houses around that? And so that, that's what he does for many years after leaving the world of theme parks is that he goes into these types of themed residential um, uh, designed for communities and he makes a tremendous amount of money doing that. Well, thanks for the context. It, you know, it's, there's only so much that can be covered in a, in a book and certainly there's a, a lot of material on Disneyland and its development and, and even shortly thereafter as, as Wood exited. So I appreciate the, the perspective and to what his life ended up being uh, post Disneyland and post working for Disney. Sure. Absolutely riveting. <laughs> and yeah, I think uh, if it's, if it's not entirely clear to the listeners already, I, I, I definitely think it's such a worthwhile book into offering a different spin on um, what Disneyland's development was like. And, and also just, again, just the notion of, Op- opening day in particular being such a uh, an immersive experience um, from the standpoint of how you construct that narrative. So I, I really appreciated it from that standpoint too. Well, thank you very much. Well, I'd like to, to conclude with, as I do with all of my guests, asking some Disney-related questions. Um, so these are based on your opinion, Todd. Uh, so the segment we call it Ask My Questions and Get Some Answers, which is a, a reference to Ariel from The Little Mermaid. So given that this is a music and book themed podcast, I'll be asking you some three standard music-related questions. <laughs> okay. I will fail on the music-related music questions. <laughs> well, I promise you they're opinion-based, so there are no wrong answers. Uh, okay. Maybe, maybe some that listeners disagree with in terms of your responses, but no wrong answers. Uh, so I'll ask you some music-related questions, uh, a couple of book-related questions, and then a random Disney question. Okay. So... Uh, are you ready, Todd? I'm feeling lucky. We'll go, yes. Okay. Well, to get started, uh, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? What Disney soundtrack did I listen to most while growing up? You know, I listened to the soundtrack of the 
the black hole oddly quite a bit while growing up. I think I might go with that as the actual record that I played the most when I was young was the uh, orchestral soundtrack for uh, the black hole. Very nice. Yeah, sci-fi. Love it. What Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? <laughs> um, I, uh, geez, um, when I've gone out and have gone running, um, uh, recently I have, um, uh, uh, put magic happens, um, on a loop and have gone running to that a few times in the last month. Wow. Okay. So park song. Love it. Okay. Nice. What Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Oh, uh, Three Caballeros, easily. Any reason why? Um, I think there's a tremendous kind of interplay. I, I like uh, both of the South American films a lot. I think there's a tremendous kind of interplay between the visuals and the music and how the music kind of gives give rise to what we see on the screen. Um, I like that these films are not using music to advance plot, that these are just kind of a, a jubilant expression of of sound. I think that's like really different in terms of um, what a Disney film is outside of Fantasia. Um, and um, I, I, I love, uh, so for me, a lot of the Disney films from this period are uh, looking to make animation more like live action. So you get um, uh, color, Walt's very interested in uh, dimensional realism with a multiplane camera. Walt's interested in terms of how to create a camera crane system that can move and track shots and dolly shots like you can in live action. And, and so he's focused on how animation could be more like uh, Hollywood films. And once you get to the South American films, I think there's something about kind of moving the focal point from what's happening in America to what's happening in Central America or South America um, with music and story ideas that a lot of interesting things just start to happen. Once you kind of remove it from that Hollywood context, those films become very surreal. They have other types of artistic influences that are, that are coming in and musical influences that are, that are coming in. And so like all of these things are working together to create a very, different experience in animation. And I, and I like that a lot. For sure. Very nice. So moving over to book questions, Todd, what's the most recent Disney related book that you have read? Okay. The most recent Disney book related uh, book that I've read is um, th there was a privately published. Uh, I've read it once before. I've been going back through it again to take notes on it by Adrian Teitla, which was uh, Bill or Vladimir Teitla's uh, wife. Um, and it's, it's a tape-bound book um, in which all the pages have been Xeroxed. And um, it's mostly a collection of kind of essays and letters and reflections um, about Bill Teitla and um, uh, his wife's perspective as working as, a, as, a, as an artist model. And the book is called uh, Disney's uh, Giant and the Artist's Model. And that's the most recent book I've been going through. Wow, very cool. If you could write another Disney book on any topic, I know you have a few under your belt, so maybe you don't want to reveal what could be next on your docket, but if you could write another Disney book on any topic, what, what is something that would interest you? So um, I think that, you know, so all the kind of large tectonic books have been written and have been written really well now. And so I, I think there's like a couple of ways to move forward and to create things that are interesting and distinct. And that's either to kind of narrow in on a very small topic or to find a topic that's been covered and to cover it from different perspectives. And so in the word Kimball book, um, I wanted to uh, explore the story of the development of the Disney studios during the golden age. But pretty much all the books that have been written about that either explore it from Walt or Roy's perspective. And so I wanted to kind of move out into some other perspectives. So I think there's a lot of kind of uh, space for that type of exploration to go on as well. In the early years of animation or over an Imagineering to kind of follow things that are not from um, uh, the most prevalent perspective that we keep seeing things from over and over again. Um, like I think we have a very 
Walt-centric idea of the history of Disney Studios and the Disney parks, and to kind of get in there and to kind of figure out what other clusters are about, I, I bet that'd be very interesting. I like that notion too. And it's a, a, a vague enough answer too, so you can go in a variety <laughs> of different directions. So Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to whatever might be next on the docket. And uh, I, I really appreciate that perspective too. I think I, I kind of see right now this period of time over recent years as being like a renaissance of, of great Disney books. So um, I am covering such very topics, kind of like what you're talking about with Ward Kimball. So I, I'm eager to see what, what might awaits for us as readers. Last question for you, Todd. So this is a random question. What is your most treasured souvenir from visiting the Disney theme parks? What is my most treasured souvenir from visit? Oh, wow. Um, um, as my wife will tell you, um, our, our house is uh, cluttered full with um, various Disney things. Um, so let's see, I've got a piece of the original overhead track from um, uh, the Peter Pan ride when they, when they um, swapped out the rails many years ago. That, that, that might be somewhere on that list, I think. Oh, no, um, and this would be from, I've got a piece of the Carrollwood track. That might be my favorite souvenir, but that's, that's not one of the parks. It's just the things that gave rise to the park. So basically your most prized souvenirs are uh, metal and track and things that you couldn't <laughs> actually purchase in a store. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, That's really I, yeah. cool. So where, where do, you, do you mind if I ask where you have those situated in your, in your house? Um, I, um, so I have um, some of the track up on, some of the overhead track up on the wall. And then I actually had a couple pieces of Carolwood track. I have um, one piece that's in a bookshelf and then I have another piece in my office at school. Very cool. I, I think that's something that's very unique and <laughs> uh, separates you from, from, from most park goers for sure. What, what are the other people's answers to that question? <laughs> well, this is a random question. I've actually never asked okay. anybody this. Oh, okay. Oh, got it. Okay. Okay. So I, I thought of, um, it, I, I want to ask you this in particular because I, um, obviously, given the material of covering the early days of Disneyland, I was curious in terms of what, what piece of the parks uh, mattered to you and, and has been a treasure for you, although I could not have expected the answer to be an actual piece of the park. <laughs> So, piece of the park would be the answer. Piece of the park. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, Todd, this has been a wonderful conversation, and I want to make sure that listeners can follow your work um, across a, a variety of platforms. Can you let them know where to purchase your books and, and follow the podcast? Yeah, sure. Um, the, the books are available like all books over on Amazon. Um, I have a personal website, which is www.toddjamespierce.com. And there's links to the books there and there's links to the podcast. Um, right now I've been trying to put up a podcast at least every week um, because there's just been so much going on recently. Um, but the, there's, there's always things happening over there. Wonderful. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking with you and, and getting to know not only more about uh, the early days of Disneyland, but also C.V. Wood, I think. I knew a little bit going into this process, but I feel like I know a whole lot more coming out of that. And I think it's the role of a, a good author and historian to be able to uncover those stories. So thanks for your role and in, in really providing that opportunity for us. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a, been a pleasure to talk with you today. Thanks, Todd, for coming on Notably Disney. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation. Uh, he certainly had some great picks for the very final questions, if you ask me. I would love to have a piece of the Peter Pan's flight track in my house. That's uh, quite unique, Todd. I had a kick out of that. Um, as you could tell, Todd is quite informed as it pertains to the history of Disneyland and, and so many other domains within Disney as well. And what a gift to have learned more about C.V. Wood in this context, and certainly Todd's other work, like the War Kimball book that was mentioned, really give perspective into particular figures within Disney's nearly century-long history. Um, we're, we're nearing that 100-year mark of the Walt Disney Company. It's pretty amazing. So thanks again, Todd. 
and definitely check out Three Years in Wonderland. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company. 